The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Alumni Ventures. Invest with confidence. Discover the power of venture investing with Alumni Ventures, America's largest venture firm for individual investors. Learn more at av.vc. You know, in the context of trauma, sometimes we are, we're so protected by our amygdala or the fear response, we don't even know what happened, right? And so I think you also have to assume that there are a lot of unconscious things that are driving people. But yeah, I think remembering that they're a, the inner child of each person and that there's something that's deeply triggering in everyone is, is really important as you manage. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who've dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they pick themselves back up, and how they hope workplaces will change in the future. You can't really go anywhere today without hearing the phrase self-care, and it's easy to make light of the concept. But when you have mental illness, self-care is key to your functioning. I always like to say self-care is leadership. As a society, we've come a long way in understanding the value of taking care of yourself and also in integrating many different methodologies and traditions. My children meditate every morning in their public school, which is so awesome. But in many careers, in many workplaces, success and self-care are still at odds. Don't complain, get the work done, ignore the pain. Taking care of ourselves can be seen as an indulgence at best. I completely disagree with this, as do almost all medical professionals. Well, extreme self-care, from the important to the ridiculous, is the point of Goop. You can't go almost anywhere today without knowing about Goop, the Gwyneth Paltrow-founded modern lifestyle brand that includes a blog, products, even a Netflix show. And Paltrow herself often puts her foot in it. She's a privileged, sometimes tone-deaf, easy target in our polarized and unequal world. There's a candle from the shop at goop.com, and it says in big letters on a rosy background, this smells like your vagina. It actually smells like tuberoses, and it was a viral hit, even though it was $80. It sold out twice. Why am I often drawn to goop, even if sometimes I think I should know better? Well, part of it is, yes, the pretty Instagram-ready feminism. But the legit part is that the editorial content and adjacent products on the site offer conventional and alternative ways to approach common problems, including anxiety. Today's guest makes frequent appearances on the Goop Lab Netflix show, serving as a guinea pig in everything from acupuncture to vampire facials and psychedelics. Many listeners write to me to express how difficult it can be to work in an environment where you can't bring emotion to work where in effect, you've got to build an armor around your feelings. And so I was really curious to talk with a leader who manages an environment where how you feel and what steps you take to feel better are key to the product. What does it feel like to show up each day in a culture where everyone actually feels pressure to be well, <laughs> to share emotions and bring their whole selves to work? So today we'll be speaking to Elise Lunin, Chief Content Officer at Goop, about how she leads and how she models good mental health for her team. Before we jump in, I want to quickly tell you two things. One, I'll sound a little different in this interview, thanks to the technology shifts we've all had to deal with in the COVID crisis. 
And two, some good news. The Anxious Achiever is a Webby Awards honoree in business podcasts for 2019. Thank you so much to all of you out there for listening and supporting us. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Elise. The reason I wanted to have you on the show was I wanted to know, I mean, this is a show about anxiety and leadership, ultimately. When I watched the show, The Goop Lab on Netflix, I was I was so struck by how open everyone was about their feelings, their anxiety, their trauma. And, you know, you had like the IT team on the show, the counting team. Yeah. It wasn't just um, the content team. And it, and it was awesome to see. But I also found myself wondering if, a, if that ever gets to be a lot, you know, like you came from New York City, you came from Condé Nast and the world of publishing, which is the opposite of sort of woo woo, let's all feel our feelings. And I'm curious if it was a shift for you to be in a workplace where bringing your whole self to work is no joke. And also, like, how do you keep boundaries in place? Because mm-hmm. you you want people to be professional, you need people to be boundaried in in feeling their feelings and oversharing. So can you talk a little bit about your journey and how you keep the workplace professional while also open? That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's very unusual. And within the executive team, we talk about it because our teams, if they didn't bring a lot of feelings to the company, then they start to have a lot of feelings. And so it's interesting, you know, to, to manage through that. Like Kate, who was on the show in the Wim Hof episode, who's our executive editor, and I've I uh, worked with her for many years. Like she's very open about her anxiety disorder. I have uh, an anxiety disorder. I hyperventilate. Weirdly, it's essential to know those things if you're going to function well as a team, because you you just start to pick up on when someone is reaching a point of overwhelm, and then it allows you, I think, to be ultimately more productive and to help get people back from the edge of the cliff before they fall off the cliff. Yeah, I started getting panic attacks when I was in New York. And it was when I was like on an ass and I was at a point in my career where I felt like it wasn't actually a career yet. It was just a job. And I felt bullied by a coworker and that I had no choices and no options. And it was terrifying for me. And I was really struggling. And my tendency to hyperventilate was born. And that's when I found out that my mom and my aunt also overbreathe. And hyperventilation, when you do it chronically, is um, quite debilitating because it's a pattern that you can get stuck on for weeks and sometimes even months. And when it started happening, you know, I went to the ER, I was given, you know, I thought I was going to die. And I was given Xanax and I went, they sent me to a cardiologist. I, like I did the whole thing. I am not productive when I am in a cycle of hyperventilation. And so it's been the thing that has, one of the things that has really um, compelled me just from, you know, my own personal experience of like, how do I get this? I have to be able to manage myself if I'm going to be able to manage my family, manage my team, manage at this company. And I think everyone has that thing. And so for companies to not acknowledge that isn't really a productive option because clearly people can't do their best work when they feel like they can't take a deep breath um, or whatever it is that might be interfering Yeah, but at the same time, it requires you to, (laughs) you still have to go to work, like you still have to function. 
How do you, for, for, for managers who don't work at an environment like Goop, would you recommend that there be a check-in time that you set aside? Like, like if, if an, if an employee, you know, is struggling, is this an intuitive thing because you know them and, and you know what's, what, what their thing is? Do you make check-in times? Like what's the best way to set aside time so that you as their manager can check in with them? And then, you know, how do you sort of keep it bounded, but also, um, give them what they need. Yeah. So one thing that we do, particularly on the executive level, and I've done this with my team as well, although as we've worked together for so long, it is quite intuitive, but we do one really good and easy intervention. And again, I would say the leader of the team should model sort of the, not you don't have to share everything, but should model vulnerability is to do red, yellow, green. And you go around the room and you just say your color and you can say, you can not elaborate. You can be like, I'm, I'm just really red today. You could say, um, I'm really red today because my mother got a really scary diagnosis and I am completely preoccupied and probably will be irritable. Um, but I'm green on this other thing that's happening maybe at work. People can elaborate or not elaborate. But I think it's just sometimes also important to remind leaders and team members that we all have lives that are complex and that exist beyond the beyond the office and that sometimes there there's invariably going to be seepage and we have to hold space for that. And I think, again, having ways of communicating like that is very helpful because then it also prevents people from making up stories, right? So if I'm really stressed or you're really stressed and then you bring that into the office and it has nothing to do with work and you're abrupt and short with people and then the person you manage leaves their, your office and they're like, oh my God, I'm going to get fired, you know, or um, and people start to spiral. And so I also at at team meetings in particular, I'm like, is anyone making up any stories? Is anyone need clarification on anything? Is you'll say that. Sure. You'll, you'll say, is, yeah. is anyone making up? Do people know what that means? Is that something that you sort of yeah. teach your staff as they as they get to know you and the team making up stories? Yeah. And that's a Brene Brown um, intervention and in, invention. Like she talks about how in the absence of information, people make up stories. So um, and that's where, you know, things get virality in offices and people start they're scared and so they're they're testing these ideas on their coworkers to find out like is this do you think that you know Elisa's pissy because we're not hitting our KPIs and so i think the way to sort of get that out is if if anyone's making up any stories or feeling fearful like let's talk about it and get it out and um, and then being transparent and honest. And sometimes that requires saying, yeah, I am worried. Um, or it's been a weird year and there's still uncertainty, but, you know, we're here right now and things are good. And, you know, getting people back into their bodies and calming them down. And it's okay, I think, as leaders to to say you don't have the answers or that you are also concerned, but working on it. So you can sort of be open and reassuring simultaneously. 
I'm Kwame Christian, and I am the CEO of the American Negotiation Institute, and I want you to check out my podcast, Negotiate Real Change. Listen to conversations with leaders in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, and learn the secrets behind what it really takes to become a successful advocate, ally, and change maker in your organization. Check out Negotiate Real Change on your favorite podcast player. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. Higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Sometimes, though, as a leader, and I think I've read about you that you're you're the breadwinner in your family as well, and that brings so much stress. And sometimes as a leader, especially during these times, it's really scary. And you have mm-hmm. to sort of keep that fear separate from your team. It's like parenting. You know, you, you want to be real with your children, but at the same time, they need to know that you're still the parent. And what do you do with your big and scary feelings as a leader? So I try to, I, I really believe in therapy. I think even if people are, don't, aren't necessarily dealing with a crisis in their life or, you know, feel like their relationships are really strong, I still think it's good to have a therapist if you can afford it. And so I like to think of my, of my therapist as the person who, you know, holds my hair and pats me on the back while I have energetic anxiety barfs. Like, I just unload, you know, it's like all the uh, trying on all of those things. I do it with him. And then he holds the space for me and challenges me. And we talk through things and I can do what what um, another really important person in my life. She's a psychologist and an astrologer named Jennifer Freed. And she's just like the best and so reassuring and also wise and realistic. And she with me and my anxiety was like, you can also when these things happen and they're scary, take them all the way to the end. Just like, and if that happens and then what? And if that happens and then what? And then if that happens and then what? Until you get to the point where you're like, okay, I can I can accept whatever the and then what is. Um, sometimes it helps to catastrophize and just you can do it either, you know, with a therapist, with a friend, with your, your partner, um, even if it means like, okay, you have to just let me sound a little crazy and express all my fears. And I don't want you to respond. I don't want you to problem solve. I don't want you to reassure me. I just need to get this out. I'm curious if in an environment where people are much more open about what triggers them, especially in terms of their anxiety, if there's a different way you can conf- you handle criticism and confrontation or feedback. You know, something that I have experienced myself is um, as a very anxious person, and I'm I'm working on this, is I run away from feedback and criticism because I'm so scared of it and I globalize it. So talk about uh, how you use as a manager knowledge of your um, your team's triggers almost. Because uh, I, I'll give you an example. I, I have a friend who... Um, She's very open. She's open about her. She she went through severe childhood trauma and certain things trigger her. She feels very much like she will be left. She will be abandoned. She will be cut off. And so she has found it helpful to share that with her team. 
not as a way of asking them to protect her, but just as a way of saying, you know what, like if I act this way, it's not about you. You should know this about me. I love that. I think that's so powerful. And I think it often requires work. And not everyone is equipped for that. Like not everyone really understands their inner child. Like my inner child is about safety and security and never feeling safe and secure. Um, You know, Gwyneth is never feeling lovable. It's hard to, you know, people need to do a lot of work to figure out exactly what that is, because I think a lot of people um, are very unconscious about their triggers do you know um, the triggers of the executive team and your team? Like you just rattled off Gwyneth's. I'm just curious. Is that like something yeah. that you have? Like I, I am an INTJ. <laughs> yeah. I love Myers-Briggs. I, um, I know Gwyneth's and I could intuit the other people on the leadership teams just from having spent a lot of time in offsites. And like when we do offsites, we do a lot of that work. We talk a lot about inner child stuff in order to be able to um, relate better and to know where people are coming from. So it's not consistent across every, we have a pretty big leadership team, but I pretty much know people's stories or the stories that um, have really shaped and informed them. I think sometimes too, you know, in the context of trauma, sometimes we are, we're so protected by our amygdala or the fear response. We don't even know what happened, right? And so I think you also have to assume that there are a lot of unconscious things that are driving people. But yeah, I think remembering that they're the inner child of each person and that there's something that's deeply triggering in everyone is is really important as you manage. And, you know, what I will offer if you don't know that or are building relationships is that in terms of feedback and having those harder conversations, one thing that we do is we practice, it's a practice called speaking straight and listening generously. And the idea of speaking straight is, is what it seems, never with the intent to harm or be cruel, but to be clear and transparent, because that's what's kind. Um, and then listening generously is the goal of listening with with the goal of your mind being changed. So the way that it works is if you're having a feedback conversation is you say to the person, oh, I need to speak straight to you about something, which obviously is scary, right? And then that's an immediate cue that you need to listen generously. And so you sort of have to relax into it and not respond or defend and just listen listen and try to understand that person's point of view first before you move to shut down the conversation. So it takes practice and it's scary and we we practice and model it with each other. But it's really helpful because otherwise your immediate response when someone comes at you with feedback is to defend and to get scared. And I think you can also give feedback by acknowledging the way that you know that the person operates and and acknowledging, you know, if someone's resistant to new ideas, for example, and it's getting hard for the team, you can say, like, I know how much you feel like you need to control situations. It's one of the things that makes you so incredibly valuable. Like you never drop balls and you always get things done and you're one of the most reliable people at the company. I just want to point out that sometimes it can make you resistant to other ways of doing things and other people's ideas. And like, that's just, I just want to flag that for you so you can be conscious of it moving forward. Oh, that makes, that's, I love that. You know, I think that learning resiliency through tough feedback is something that no one ever teaches us. 
And I wish I wish we learned it in college. It would have helped. Yeah. You know, and I think it starts with like how we're parented, right? Mm-hmm. And it it's is a certain amount of resiliency that's required and that also tends to, you know, things don't have to get so bad that people leave or you feel compelled to quit. I think even conversations around maybe this job not being the right job for someone can be positive, not to sound Pollyanna-ish, but I think that there's so much like negativity and fear wrapped up in those conversations that, and there's always this idea from employers that by by letting someone go or whatever, that you're depriving this person of the best opportunity of their life. Where in reality, I think what often happens, particularly if it's done well, and the person truly is not like a good fit or living their purpose or, you know, is that it can be the best thing that it's It's scary, of course, but it can be the best thing. It's a gift. And employers, I think, are too sanctimonious really about being like, this is terrible for this person. When in the reality, if you do it well and with kindness and you're sort of like, this is clearly not the right thing for you. And I don't want you to waste years of your life doing something that's not right for you. That can be a very mutually, it can be kind of a mutually loving experience. And typically people then go on, like they just, it just changes the relationship in a way that I think is so much more productive. At least I want to, I want to ask you about something else that, um, I was listening to another fabulous podcaster, Jesse Hempel, and, um, you were on mm-hmm. her show, Hello Monday, and you talked about your mom's bag lady anxiety. I, I, like my ears perked up. Um, I also <laughs> grew up, my mother, God bless her, still, you know, horrible, horrible anxiety about ending up with nothing as a woman. And um, I think you said your mom's was was so sort of legendary. She actually went on the Donahue show to talk about yes. it. But can you can you talk about that? And then um, how that has affected you and your relationship with money at work? Yeah, I mean, it's a big deal for my mom. And to this day, you know, this is Every time I talk to her, she asks me if I'm going to lose my job. You know, that's the level of of her anxiety for my future and my kids. And it's very hard for her. And she, again, is someone who doesn't doesn't have a therapist. It would be profound for her um, to just have someone to get all of that anxiety out. But yes, she grew up, you know, both of my parents grew up with scarcity. And my mom grew up the oldest of seven kids in Iowa and, you know, did have food scarcity and they got through it, of course. And but she just grew up very uncertain and it stuck with her. I think just that fear, that foundational fear around safety and security. And as I said, that's my thing, right? Like that's what she that was one of my inheritances. And in some ways, it's been a gift because it's it drives me and it's driven me very hard throughout my early life. My dad doesn't doesn't operate like that, but my mom, you know, is constantly on it on on it with both me and my brother. My brother is not as infected by it as I am. Now, you know, I'd say in the last 5 years, like 10 years maybe, really after a point in my life where I was like, okay, I I have a career and I can do this. I'm good at what I do and there is a need for this in the world and it aligns with what I think my my purpose is. It was really only then 
even though I don't have sort of endless financial security, we have a you know perfectly nice life, et cetera. It's not we're not rolling in it, but it's good. It's only then that I could really start the work of putting that down and understanding that it was not serving me. This like do 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 is not sustainable, and I have got to learn how to be and you know trust the universe. And honestly, it's like this might sound delusional to some people, but I was talking to an intuitive who's a friend and she was like, money is not your issue in this lifetime. That is not like what you're here to learn. And just that alone was so helpful because I, I helped me transition again, maybe delusionally into this place of having more faith in the universe and really having foundational faith in myself that it's not like that can't, that is not my thing. And I can feel that, you know, it's like it's easy to 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 poke that bear with a stick. But yet I've gotten very good at reminding myself like that is not your thing. I've always been able to make it rain somehow. Some and I I know that I can continue to do that. And then I, now it's become more about controlling that and not not operating from a place of fear because when I operate from a place of fear, you know, I've I've co-written books my whole career in addition to having a, a full-time job. And it was amazing. It helped me buy a house, et cetera. It was like an amazing, it's been an amazing mechanism for me to feel safe and secure. And I've met some extraordinary people doing it. But when I operate from fear, it's when my agent will be like, hey, this, this, there's this random project. And I'm like, I'll do it. And she's like, really? Like, why? Um, because you'd be staying up I'm like, all hours and trying to squeeze in ghostwriting exactly. a book in addition to your very yes. busy full-time job and kids and da, 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 da. Et cetera. It's not necessary. Mm. And so, but I will, I've done that in the past where I'm like, I operate from that, that fear place. And now it's like, I'm just constantly wrestling it down and constantly reassuring myself that like, yes, if it comes to that, I can always do that, but I don't need to do it just because. I can, you know, that distinction, like just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Um, and I think for people who suffer from that anxiety, it, it's very powerful to figure out what that could look like for you, um, like what those safety nets are so that you can reassure yourself, but not necessarily feeling as I have, I've done. I'm not a good example of this, of like pulling on the safety net all the time when I don't actually need the safety net. But it's it's hard. It's, it's a process. So my last question for you is, um, I, I know you tried on the, when I was watching you on the Goop Lab, Goop Lab, you had a lot of, um, experiments in dealing with, with your mental health and dealing with your feelings, your trauma, everything. You tried psychedelics, you tried all kinds of modalities. Um, what modalities are you interested in right now? What's on your radar for anxiety or even specifically panic and breathing? Yeah, I mean, we did, as you saw, an episode on psychedelics. And I think that not to be Pollyanna-ish, but I do think that plant medicine and sort of experiences of, like what we've had this year are are going to be profound healing tools to remind us of what's essential and what really truly matters. And again, to like unearth those little those little kids in all of us that are, drive our behavior when we're really in fear. And I think that what we're going to experience as well as a country, as a world, is that we are all 
traumatized. We are being traumatized by what's happening currently, how it will continue to unfold for a long time. And also, um, I think it compounds previous trauma that we've all had. I just, I don't know anyone who isn't traumatized, even if they don't even recognize it as trauma. So I think that what we're going to find is that people are going to be reaching for tools, simple tools that will start to sort of get past the layers of this year and then into the deeper work so that we can also, you know, be kinder and better neighbors and more compassionate and, um, and again, just like operate a little bit more consciously. And, you know, the things that I think are most, I think psychedelics are one incredible tool for that and for trauma and PTSD. And they've been very instrumental for me in the last year since making the Netflix show. But I think that they're, they're just one tool in the kit. I think that, you know, James Gordon, for example, who is the founder of the Center for Mind-Body Medicine and has consulted numerous presidents and travels all over the world working with traumatized communities, whether it's post-fire or earthquake or whatever it might be. Um, I was talking to him yesterday, and there are really simple tools. His book, The Transformation, I think is a must-read for everyone. But soft belly breathing, um, just which is you just relax your stomach and as you breathe in you think soft and as you exhale you say belly you know internally or not and you just relax it's very relaxing and then I think it's going to be a question of moving our bodies and really getting it out he does shaking and dancing which is like you literally shake like an animal and dance for five to ten minutes or um the like hypnotic breathing, which is like you move your arms like a bird really frantically. It's sort of it's similar to Stan Groff's um, holographic breathwork, which you do on your back. But I think that we're going to start as community, start doing these things together and alone. And I think that people are just going to get it out of their bodies. I think it's going to be a forcing mechanism for a lot of us. Like we can't operate like this on any level. And we have to learn how to get it out, understand it, know what it is, like know what we're working with that we're not acknowledging that's inside of us and then heal it. Um, It's going to make all of us sort of better and um, kinder and, and wiser. That's it for this week's show. If you like what you've heard, tell a friend or rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have a question or a topic that you'd like to see featured on the show, you can email anxiousachiever at gmail.com or tweet me at Mora A.M. That's M-O-R-R-A-A-M. Many thanks to Mary Dew, my amazing producer and the team at Harvard Business Review. And of course, to our advertisers who keep us going and my guests. And if you like the Anxious Achiever music, it's by Brian Campbell at Signal Sounds NYC. From HBR Presents, this is the Anxious Achiever. I'm Maura Aaron's Mealy. <laughs>